Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. It's another episode! 30! Now, we stopped doing the thing where we feel like we have to say (laughs) something, but 30 is 30. We're in a new decade. That's worth commenting on. 30 does feel milestone-ish. It's totally milestone-ish. In a way that 40 doesn't. Like, in my head, it's like 30 and then 50. Mm, I suppose. The dirty 30. <laughs> that didn't come out till after I turned 40, to my, <laughs> to my infinite sadness. I just remember getting... Uh, being at like an aunt's birthday party and they got a card or a banner that said lordy lordy look who's 40 yeah and my little mormon child brain was like that's inappropriate (laughs) (laughs) wow wow well it's funny the ways that kids can be indoctrinated i remember the first time my my bestest cousin said the F word in front of me when we were little. And I was like, my immediate thought was, oh, my God, she's going to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was like, not even to say an adult, I would say probably around 30 before I fully comprehended that don't use the Lord's name in vain means like televangelist grifters and not saying like goddamn Mm. (laughs) it's like actually people pretending to be religious or pretending to like represent god for their own greed and personal gain is Mm. what that actually means (laughs) i was like holy shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah you were indoctrinated good the whole cult (laughs) yeah that was one where i was like oh, that makes so much more sense. Like, why would God be like, nope, you used my name wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I was such a bad Catholic, though, because I remember being in in CCD, which is like catechism classes, which is that only a Catholic thing, catechism, or is that? It's not Mormon, I can tell you that. (laughs) Okay, well, I was basically in like Sunday school for Catholics, and... I don't know. I mean, but I, we were like in fourth grade, fifth grade. So I wasn't little, little. And I remember we were talking about some biblical story and I don't know, the Garden of Eden or, you know, some, some like Old Testament thing. And I remember saying to my teacher, like, but this is fiction, right? Like, You know, because in class you talk about it and they talk about it as if like all of this was real and really happened. And I, it was not computing to me. And so I had to be the one that was like, so like, this is a myth, right? (laughs) We are the same. (laughs) Except our slight difference is I never asked anybody. Mm. Like I had earth shattering revelations as like a 16, 17 year old. Mm. Because I assumed they were parables. Yeah. Like, I just lived my whole religious life thinking everybody believed Noah and the Ark was a moral tale and not a true story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then getting a lesson from, like, my Mormon seminary teacher that the Great Flood was the Earth's baptism. (laughs) And I was like, metaphorically, right? (laughs) (laughs) like no that really happened and i was like "Uh oh yeah (laughs) Mm. Uh uh-oh crisis of faith incoming i know same same i mean catholics i don't know if you know i don't know why you would have any reason to know but catholics are taught to believe that when you have communion at church it's not a symbol like it turns into the blood and the crusty old corpse of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I do know that. <laughs> so it's like, what the fuck? That's weird. Well, and it's extra weird because there's no need for it. Right. Like, it absolutely makes sense to do it symbolically. Just some guy was like, hey, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> what if we said it's like the real blood and body? 
I just don't understand. Like, was there a time when they were like, oh, it's a symbol. And then it was like, you know what? That's just not powerful enough. Yeah. I mean, well, especially knowing like the history of Catholicism. I mean, so much of it was political and getting people on board and like probably appealing to people's mysticism. Mm. But like who wants to drink the actual blood? I mean, it's... Army Hammer. <laughs> besides him. Uh, Allegedly. Bes- besides the people who we talk about on our podcast. <laughs> Well, if you look at any QAnon forum, Ellen DeGeneres and Tom Hanks. What? I mean, Tom Hanks has done enough to destroy the earth by spawning Chet Hanks. He has enough to answer for without any big conspiracy. I did the unfortunate thing of looking in a QAnon-esque forum, Mm -hmm. and it was all about, like, how the... Democrats take this drug that is the synthesized version of the fear in a child. So like the plot from Monsters, Inc. (laughs) And it was just like, holy shit, we're not going to make it. (laughs) No, we're not. We're not. It's just the only thing I wonder is I wish that You know, like we talk about sometimes when we die wishing to have like the power of knowing so we could know what happened in certain cases or to certain big mysteries. But for me, I just wish that I were omniscient so that I could like zoom out and see where on the like decline of modern American society we are. Like how far down the hill are we at this point? Well, that actually is kind of a piece of Mormonism. Really? Yeah, one of the things when you die, it's very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) The earth is going to be baptized by fire. It's going to be celestialized and turned into this like perfect entity that takes on the form of this Mormon thing called the Urim and Thummim. And basically you can like look into a crystal ball and it'll give you any answers you want about from history. (laughs) I mean, I can see the appeal there. This, like, wasn't even my, like, this is a an accident, like, a happy accident. I didn't plan <laughs> for banter to go in this direction. I know, but here we are. But it's not a transition because I have something to talk about. We're, like, firmly in the ballpark of the episode. <laughs> we are, and we're going to come back. But last week we talked about my great disappointment in you and your refusal to keep your promise to watch Yellow Jackets. But this week I have something to talk with you about that I think you probably haven't seen because I think if you did, you would have told me, but is more accessible and doesn't require a pesky free trial called The After Party. Have you seen it? Oh, yes. You watched it? I have seen the whole thing. How could you not tell me? Oh, my God, you're the worst. I loved it. I loved it too. Oh my god, it was amazing. I accidentally solved it. Mm. Like I wasn't on the quest to solve it and it wasn't through any clues that were laid out. Mm-hmm. I was like, this character's too nice. They probably did it. <laughs> like literally, I I didn't use any of the clues that the show like did give us. Like once yeah. you got the reveal of how the detective solved it, right? It was all there slowly unrevealed. But like truly, I was like, I bet it's them. Just vibes alone, <laughs> which means we are in fact the same person because I was the same exact way. I just. Like, I had a vibe for sure. But it was funny when they revealed the step-by-step answers where I was like, oh, no, I didn't see almost any of those. Yeah, I didn't. No, I I don't even really totally watch for clues, except there was a part where there was, like, some drink switcheroo. Like, I was looking for inconsistencies between the stories, but I don't know. Like, I'm not a big clue I go with my intuition and I look into my Mormon crystal ball. <laughs> and we, you're, you're a <laughs> 
Well, let's just get into it. Let's dig right in. And this week, this week we're getting a little cray cray. Yeah, we're doing things a little different this week. <laughs> so, uh, and I'll need you to add this to the IMDb, but as most Fowles resident Mormon historian and scholar. Okay, noted. <laughs> Uh, AKA forced to be Mormon for far too much of my life. <laughs> I'm going to talk about today's crimes. What? So do, 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 do. That let's get right into the life and many crimes of Mark Hoffman. Mm-hmm. He was born in 1954 in Salt Lake City, Utah, home of the Mormon corporation, cult, church, whatever C word you want to insert there. (laughs) Uh, And maybe all of the above, but (laughs) looking at his childhood, you can see the beginnings of his bloody future. So I, I included this because I thought it was interesting and I feel like we'll discuss it at the end, but Hoffman was cited as being a below average high school student. Mm. And to me, I think that just means doesn't care for the authority structure and probably didn't care about school, but highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'd say probably a bit of a loser. He did stage magic. <laughs> <laughs> he worked with electronics, chemistry. He collected coins and stamps. Um, hello. Yes. Radio Shack is calling and wants his geek <laughs> back. <laughs> and then there are reports that he and his friends even made bombs for fun and set them off out in the desert. Which, in reality, me and my friends did combine a bunch of fireworks to make explosives, too. (laughs) Like, it's not as... Like, bombs could be a very loose interpretation. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Wow. This is going in a weird direction. Well, no, it's just, like... It's easy, like, in retrospect to be, like, they made bombs, but like mm. it could have just been like a couple M80s taped together with and lighting a fuse, you know? <laughs> but anyway, at his own admission, Hoffman's forgery career began in his teens when he forged a rare mint mark on a dime and was told by an organization of coin collectors that it was genuine. Mm. Now, I know there are still forgeries today. There are still cons today. But I think it's important as we set this scene to remember that it's the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. There wasn't an online databases. You couldn't scan things in. Like, of course, people were experts, but it just feels like it must have been so much easier to pull off things like this back then. On the other hand, though... It was so much harder to find out how to do these things. So it's not like you could Google how to falsify a coin marking. You know what I mean? True. But there, I mean, there are still books and libraries. Yeah. But like many Mormons, in 1973, Hoffman served a mission in Bristol, England. And... Also, like many Mormons and many ex-Mormons, according to him, he only went on that mission because of social and family pressure. Mm -hmm. Now, according to him, he lost his faith in the Mormon church and became an atheist around the age of 14 after learning that his grandparents on his mom's side continued to secretly practice polygamy for more than a decade after the Mormon church publicly ended the practice. Mm -hmm. Now, as a quick aside... I'd be remiss not to add that they only sort of ended the practice. Mormons get married for eternity, not until death. So if you're a man and your wife dies, you can marry another woman for eternity. But if you're a woman and your husband dies, you can only marry another man until death. Mm-hmm. So in 2022, the Mormon church still fully believes that polygamy is an eternal concept and that men will have many, many, many wives in their version of heaven. So sorry to get preachy, but it just annoys the shit out of me Mm -hmm. how Mormons pretend that they don't believe in polygamy because 
it's illegal and therefore they can't practice it when in the theology it's like essential to their version of heaven Mm. and technically men can be married to multiple women in the afterlife right now Mm. so anyway (laughs) back to hoffman um, it's reported that while in England on his mission, he spent a lot of time exploring bookstores and buying early Mormon material as well as books critiquing Mormonism. And after he returned home from his mission, he enrolled as a pre-med major at Utah State University and married a woman named Dora Lee, who went by Dory Olds, in 1979. And then the very next year, Hoffman really upped the ante on his forgery career. So, in 1980, he claimed that he found a 17th century King James Bible with a very special paper folded up and forgotten inside of it. According to Hoffman, the document was an important piece of early Mormon history called the Anthon Transcript, which was a paper that Joseph Smith allegedly wrote several lines of characters of an ancient language that he copied from his golden plates, which... Depending on your level of familiarity, he claimed to have found these golden plates and then translated them to create the Book of Mormon, which is Mormonism's founding scripture. So this document, which Hoffman alleged to have found, would have been a document that was presented to a classics professor at Columbia University in the 1800s to prove the validity of the Book of Mormon. So obviously to us now, this was a fake. But it wasn't obvious then. So Hoffman constructed his version to fit with the description of the document, and its discovery made Hoffman's reputation as a legitimate documents dealer. So a man named Dean Jesse, the best-known expert on handwriting and old documents in the historical department of the Mormon Church, as well as an editor for a thing called Spitz Papers, a project researching, collecting, and publishing all manuscripts and documents created by or under the direction of Joseph Smith, who was the creator of Mormonism. Um, So this man concluded that the document was real. Again, we know it was not real. (laughs) They did not know. Uh, The Mormon Church announced the discovery of the transcript and purchased it from Hoffman for more than $20,000, which, in today's money, is $68,863. Wow. So, huge payday for this very young Hoffman. Now, can I interject with a question here? Yeah. And I'm sorry about my ignorance, but the Anthon transcript, that was a historically known thing to have existed. Mm -hmm. It was a thing that, absolutely right, it it did exist. That's not to say that the language inside was actually from an ancient book of gold, but the The paper was taken to this professor. Okay, okay, and that is, I mean, that's one of the things I find really confusing about this case is, is a forgery, is it a forgery of something that, was actually purported to have existed, or was it a forgery that was totally made up? Anyway. Yes, this was a forgery of a thing that was known to have existed and then been lost. Got it. Okay. Thank you. And then, of course, like, it's also a piece that, in theory, could be used to validify the Book of Mormon, so there's skin in the game for this expert to say it's real. Right. Like, it's not just unbiased i mean the mormon church bought it and then immediately like bragged about it right 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 but yeah so assuming the document to be genuine a prominent mormon academic named hugh nibley predicted that the discovery promised quote as good a test as we'll ever get of the authenticity of the book of mormon end quote i mean that doesn't even make any sense though that's i know (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we're dealing with some sketchy history. That seems like it involves some kind of logical fallacy. Hmm. I have some some comparison points I could make, but keeping with the story. Unsurprisingly, after that payday, Hoffman dropped out of school and went into business as a dealer in rare books. Hmm. And immediately, he began fabricating other historically significant documents and became noted among Mormon church history buffs for his discoveries of previously unknown materials. And he was damn good at this job. 
he deceived document experts all across the country as well as distinguished historians. Mm. So, notable to many ex-Mormons, his deception of the Mormon leaders, including their prophet, who allegedly talks directly to God, Mm. (laughs) is one of many things people point to when questioning the validity of the religion. Mm. Mm. So, according to Richard and Joan Ostling, co-authors of Mormon America, The Power and the Promise, Hoffman was motivated not only by greed, but also by the desire to embarrass the Mormon church by undermining their history, all while pretending to be a good and devout Mormon. Mm. So, I mean, we'll get into it more, but dude's a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In 1981, he presented the Mormon church with a document commonly referred to as the Joseph Smith III Blessing. It allegedly provided evidence that Joseph Smith designated his son, Joseph Smith III, and not Brigham Young as his successor, which, if that were true, would definitely put the Mormon church in a bad light. Mm. So he was using this to his advantage, and he was trying to sell the letter to the chief archivist of the Mormon church, expecting them to buy it and bury it, which... You know, the Mormon church has a history of doing with anything that makes them look bad. Mm -hmm. But it didn't go to plan. The archivist refused to pay a high price for it. So essentially in retaliation, he offered it to the community of Christ, which is an offshoot of the original Mormon church who always claimed that Joseph Smith's son was the legitimate successor. Mm. So (laughs) using that as a leverage point, Uh, He went back to the Mormon church, again, posing as a faithful Mormon, and presented it to his church in exchange for items worth more than $20,000. It's like, look, I want to give this to you, not to them. Right, right. So aside from this payday, he double-crossed and ensured that the document would be made public. And the next day, the New York Times ran a story with the headline, Mormon document raises doubts on succession of church's leaders, which the Mormon church then had to publicly acknowledge. So this level, this new level Mm -hmm. of power and manipulation emboldened him even further. While no one knows how many documents he forged, it's generally accepted that he made and sold hundreds of forged documents, with the biggest customer being the Mormon church. Mm. And there are many notable examples in that group. In 1983, Hoffman bypassed the Mormon church's historical department and sold directly to Mormon leader and future prophet Gordon Hinckley. So... And this one he sold was a document that claimed to confirm that Joseph Smith had been treasure hunting and practicing magic five years after his claim that he was visited by an angel, which essentially was the beginning of Mormonism. So he sold that letter for $15,000 and gave his word that no one else had a copy. (laughs) He then immediately leaked, leaked its existence to the press which forced the Mormon church to release the letter for scholars to study, despite previously lying about its existence. So, while while they are a victim, the Mormon church is complicit throughout so many of these things. Mm -hmm. And so he was getting money from them and publicly embarrassing them. Wow. So, another quick side note. Joseph Smith was a convicted con man who did practice treasure hunting and magic. So this fake letter, it just said that he did it after beginning Mormonism. So like the concept isn't a lie, but the timing is a lie. Got it. And then Mormons will use this to say the treasure hunting was a lie, which that part's true. (laughs) So this is a dispute about timing. Okay. Which is why I'm doing this side, because my head is too full of this crap. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's pretty obvious Hoffman, to pull this off, needed a really good cover story. There's no way one person could just find all of these things. So to make it seem legitimate, he used a network of tipsters, he methodically tracked down modern descendants of early Mormons, and mined collections of 19th century letters that had been saved by collectors. 
he traded in many legitimate historical documents that he acquired from rare booksellers and collectors, meaning the forgeries were intermingled with many legitimate historical documents, giving him huge credibility. And it wasn't just Mormonism. He forged and sold signatures from George Washington, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Daniel Boone, Andrew Jackson, Mark Twain, John Hancock, Francis Scott Key, Abraham Lincoln, Paul Revere, and Button Gwinnett. Mm. (laughs) Now, (laughs) if you're not from Georgia or Mm. an American history buff, you're probably asking yourself, who the fuck is Button Gwinnett? (laughs) (laughs) You read my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And the answer might surprise you. Button is one of America's founding fathers. (laughs) What? He's a representative and briefly president of Georgia and one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. What? His signature is also the rarest and most valuable of any signer of the Declaration of Independence. Well, obviously, because he was a nobody. So if you ever win a round of trivia with this information, message me a thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I was just like, what the fuck? Who is Button Gwinnett? (laughs) Button. Hey, Button. Yeah. Uh, Our founding father, Button, um, (laughs) who we Americans really love and know a whole lot about. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Um, Anyway, Hoffman even forged a previously unknown poem in the hand of Emily Dickinson. Mm. So, honestly, this part of his story is really impressive, and I think it would make for an incredible movie, Mm -hmm. but it's important for us not to be enamored because this psychopath is not worthy of praise. Yeah. Most damning to Mormonism was a thing called the Salamander Letter which he created in 1984. It was supposedly written by Joseph Smith's close friend and scribe, Martin Harris, and it presented a version of the discovery of the gold plates that was wildly different from the Mormon-sanctioned version of events. So not only did it state that Joseph Smith had been practicing money digging by using magic, it also replaced the angel that allegedly told Smith where the golden plates were with a white salamander. I mean, angel, white salamander, could be confusing. Huh, what do you, do you work for the Mormon PR department? Because I'm going to get to that. (laughs) Um, The Mormon church didn't buy the letter. It was instead purchased by a document collector and Mormon himself named Steve Christensen for $40,000, which is almost $110,000 in today's money. My God. Yeah, so much money. So Christensen wanted to try to authenticate it and then donate it to the Mormon church. Of course, like most things that Hoffman touched, the letter became public knowledge. And Mormon apostle Dallin Oaks told Mormon educators that the words white salamander could be reconciled with Joseph Smith's angel story because in the 1820s, the word salamander might also refer to a mythical being that's thought to be able to live in fire. (laughs) wow so you were on to something (laughs) um and then in 1985 the mormon church revealed the contents of the salamander letter and also released a letter to their seminary teachers across the world really um telling them not to encourage debate about the letter but to tactfully answer genuine questions And an organization called Farms, a research group of Mormon scholars, published several articles examining the letter and explaining why someone in 1830 might connect an angel with a salamander. Now, obviously, (laughs) this is all bullshit because we know the letter's fake. (laughs) But it's fascinating to see how this church would do anything to explain it away because they believed it was real. And again, this is a huge sticking point for a lot of people who leave Mormonism is that this perfect organization with leaders who talk directly to God should not be able to be fooled like this. Right. I mean, you're a prophet is like you have one job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So 
Also in 1985, Hoffman went even bigger (laughs) and forged what is possibly the most famous missing document in American colonial history, the Oath of a Free Man. This one-page document was originally printed in 1693. It was the first document printed in Britain's American colonies, and of the nearly 50 original copies, none remain. A genuine copy had an approximate worth of $1 million dollars. And that's 1985, so that's over $2.6 million in today's money. So Hoffman's agents began negotiating with the Library of Congress to make a sale. And unsurprisingly, this is the beginning of the end for Hoffman. Like many crooks, aka rich people <laughs> in general, despite making considerable money along the way, Hoffman was deeply in debt partially because of an increasingly lavish lifestyle, as well as purchases of all of the genuine first edition books and documents that served as his cover story. Mm-hmm. So his debt would eventually reach over a million dollars. Ah, my God. Yeah. And on top of this, people were finding it increasingly suspicious that one man could find all of these documents, even yeah. with a good cover. Yeah, yeah. So he was falling behind on his deals, and in a last-ditch effort to clear his debt, Hoffman attempted to broker a sale of something called the McClellan Collection, a supposedly extensive group of documents written by a man named William McClellan, an early Mormon apostle who eventually broke with the Mormon church. But there was a big problem. Hoffman had no idea where the McClellan Collection was, and he did not have time to forge a large group of documents. (sighs) He also reportedly offered to sell this collection to multiple people who gave him money. (laughs) So, like, aside from it not even existing, he offered to sell it to a man named Alvin Rust, a collector of rare coins, as well as Steve Christensen, again, this uh, documents expert, Salt Lake City businessman, and he's the one who previously bought the Salamander letter. Mm -hmm. Um, And this sale would have been with his business partner as well, a man named Gary Sheets. So they gave him money, and he did not supply the documents. The people he promised... So, again, he promised multiple people this set of documents that don't exist. So the pressure's coming in. They begin hounding him, and on top of that, he's facing questions of the validity of the Salamander Letter and the Oath of a Free Man. So the proverbial ropes were tightening. Mm -hmm. In the fall of 1985, Christensen himself was growing increasingly concerned about Hoffman's honesty and began pushing him to pay back his loans as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And then in early October of that year, Hoffman learned that the Library of Congress deal had fallen through for the Oath of the Free Man. So on October 11th, Hoffman was supposed to meet Christensen to endorse the McClellan collection to finalize their deal and finish that transaction, but Hoffman never showed. Christensen was furious and reportedly asked a friend to tell Hoffman that he was at risk of criminal charges as well as excommunication from the Mormon church. And as any psychopath would do in this situation, Hoffman did not confess to the fraud and the thefts. Instead, he started building bombs. Mm. The first bomb exploded on October 15th, 1985, in the Judge Building in downtown Salt Lake City. It killed Steve Christensen, who had received the bomb in a package addressed to him. And the package was dropped off at the building by a man wearing a letterman's jacket, which was later linked to Hoffman by a witness who recognized the jacket. So... Again, he's smart, but not that smart mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> to wear your Letterman jacket that's so easily identifiable. Right. It's like one of the Something key pieces so, of evidence. Yeah, distinctive. So then the second bomb, which was meant for Gary Sheets, was opened by his wife, Kathy, and she was the one who died. Mm. So as Hoffman had intended, police initially suspected that the bombings were related to the impending collapse of an investment business that Gary was the principal of and Steve was his partner. Hmm. So it was kind of like a two birds scenario. Like both of these men were pushing him to pay back the money 
he was never going to be able to give the money or the documents that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And their business was going under anyway. So by targeting them, police actually did sort of buy it initially that it could have been based on their business, not their connections to him. But the next day, Hoffman himself was severely injured when a bomb accidentally exploded inside of his Toyota MR2. Mm. After this, police immediately suggested him. Mm -hmm. Even still, people in the community trusted him, and a lot of his business associates went into hiding, just in case, thinking that he was the next victim on this, like, massive plot. Right, right. But during the investigation, police discovered evidence of the forgeries in Hoffman's basement, as well as the engraving plant where he forged the plate for the Oath of the Free Man. Hmm. Document examiner George Throckmorton analyzed several Hoffman documents that had previously been deemed authentic and determined that they were forgeries. Mm. I won't get into it, but it's pretty interesting about, like, the type of ink and the way it crackled was the way they caught this one. Yeah, same, same. Um, Three letters purportedly written from an Illinois prison by Joseph Smith used different ink, paper, and writing instruments. There were lots of little ways that... Mm -hmm. When it was under, like, tight scrutiny, right. they just didn't hold up. Right. And because the letters had been authenticated by different experts, these inconsistencies weren't noticed. Mm-hmm. So that was another piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. was that he had things authenticated by different people. So it wasn't, like, a person looking at all of these documents in a suite. So, like, the inconsistencies wouldn't be caught. So, right. again another tick in the smart column. Mm -hmm. But Throckmorton also discovered that some documents supposedly written by different people had similar writing styles and that they'd all been written with the homemade iron gall ink. Oh, I guess I did get into it. (laughs) Uh, That looked like cracked alligator skin under a microscope and authentic ink didn't do that. Yeah. So investigators also found that a poem used to authenticate the handwriting in the salamander letter had been forged by Hoffman and inserted in a book of common prayer once owned by Martin Harris. So not only that, but pieces that they were using as proof points were also fabricated by him. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, it was essentially an open and shut case. Hoffman was arrested in January 1986 and charged on four indictments totaling 27 counts, including first-degree murder, delivering a bomb, constructing or possessing a bomb, theft by deception, and communication fraud. A fifth indictment contained an additional five counts of theft by deception, and that was added later that month. Mm. Hoffman, again like most psychopaths, <laughs> initially maintained his innocence. However, at a preliminary hearing, prosecutors produced volumes of evidence mm-hmm. of his forgeries, his debts, and links to the bombs. Mm. So during the investigations, many of the prosecution team became convinced that they were being stonewalled by the leaders of the Mormon church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chief Investigator Jim Bell said, quote, They're hiding something. The church is doing everything it can to make this as difficult as possible. I've never seen anything like this in a homicide investigation. End quote. Mm -hmm. So this, in my opinion, was absolutely a PR strategy. Yeah. They were doing everything they could to not expose how much they were fooled. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, how could men who speak directly to God be tricked like this? (laughs) Sarcasm, sarcasm. (laughs) Even still, the Mormon church rightfully continues to take criticism for this. But back to the case. I mean, ultimately, they're not the murderers here. Right, right. Hoffman not only faced the prospect of the death penalty in Utah, but was indicted on federal charges of possession of an unregistered machine gun. (laughs) And New York prosecutors also sought an indictment for the fraudulent sale of the Oath of the Freeman. Essentially, the scumbag was fucked. (laughs) In lay terms. (laughs) Yeah. So in January of 1987, Hoffman pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, one count of theft by deception for forging the salamander letter, and one count of fraud for the bogus sale of the McClellan collection. 
The fact that Hoffman got off with a plea bargain instead of going to trial, where he would have likely faced the death penalty if found guilty, is honestly really puzzling. Right. A reporter from the LA Times wrote, quote, In any other state, you'd see this thing go on trial, because that's how prosecutors' reputations are made. Going to trial and getting bad guys, big splashes, lots of exposure. Here you have a nice plea bargain. End quote. Yeah. Again, my speculation, but this is definitely the Mormon church's doing. They are the money, and they are the power in Utah, and a trial would expose them even more for all of the deception and It's not a surprise to me that one of the few indictments he signed and pled guilty to was creating the salamander as salamander letter, since that Mm -hmm. one was the most damning. Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost as if the Mormon church met with the prosecutors and were like, this is this is the deal. Right, right, right. Well, yeah. And to leave off the hundreds of other forgeries Mm -hmm. that they probably could have pinned on him at that point. Yeah. But ultimately, Hoffman did confess to these forgeries in open court, and in return, the prosecutors in Utah and New York dropped the additional charges against him. He was sentenced, and this is going to sound crazy, he was sentenced to five years to life. (laughs) That does sound crazy. But the judge recommended that Hoffman never be released. Utah has an indeterminate sentencing structure, so prison sentences have a minimum and a maximum time frame, and the offender must serve the entire sentence until the Utah Board of Pardons opts to grant him parole sooner. Mm. So in 1988, Hoffman told the Board of Pardons that he thought planting the bombs that killed Kathy Sheets was, quote, almost a game. At the time I made the bomb, my thoughts were that it didn't matter if it was Mrs. Sheets, a child, a dog, whoever, end quote. Within the hour... (laughs) Citing Hoffman's callous disregard for human life, the board decided that he would indeed spend the remainder of his natural life in prison. Uh, Hoffman also told investigator Michael George that he was bewildered by the attention paid to his murder victims, saying, quote, I don't feel anything for them. My philosophy is that they're dead. They're not suffering. I think life is basically worthless. They could have died just as easily in a car accident. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in an afterlife. They don't know they're dead. End quote. Uh, Again, (laughs) piece of shit psychopath. Like, it's easy to get drawn into like, holy shit, it's so impressive, these forgeries. Right. He was so clever. But I feel like this is why some people think atheists are evil because they equate <laughs> they equate that sentiment with him being an atheist but like that's just straight up psychopathy psycho yeah <laughs> yeah so after hoffman was in prison he was excommunicated by the mormon church and his wife filed for divorce which good for her mm-hmm. she was an innocent bystander she was a victim in this whole process too she and mm-hmm. the children mm-hmm. so so happy she divorced and hopefully moved on to have a happy life mm. hoffman unsuccessfully attempted suicide in his cell by taking an overdose of antidepressants mm. he was revived but not before spending 12 hours lying on his right arm and blocking its circulation which in a weird twist of fate caused muscle atrophy and his forging hand was permanently disabled it's almost like he was smote by god or something (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) so hoffman is currently 67 years old and hopefully has many many more years in prison to pay for the lives that he stole and that friends is the life and crimes of mark hoffman Uh, wow wow piece of shit (laughs) Seriously, seriously. And I mean, I do get it. He is an interesting person in some ways. And there are parts of his crime that are not so heinous on the face of them. You know, I think oftentimes property type of crimes, especially ones that target affluent or otherwise people of elevated standing, just don't evoke a lot of sympathy in people but 
he was just a monster in so many different ways. If it wouldn't have been, I mean, it's so stupid to say, if it wouldn't have been for the murders, Mm -hmm. like, this would be a catch-me-if-you-can, like, anti-hero type of piece-of-shit guy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably, well, you'll get into the culture, but that's probably why there aren't a bunch of movies, Mm -hmm. is that it would have to address... What a heinous piece of shit he is. You couldn't do the lighthearted forgery story because of the way the real life story ends. Right. Well, and I think in a lot of ways, his complete lack of remorse and callousness is in a weird way the most interesting thing about him. Like, Mm -hmm. besides that, he was just kind of a boring geek. So not... Not one of those kind of flamboyant con artists that inspires a lot of fiction. Yeah. But jumping on over to the culture side, if you do a Google search for Mark Hoffman, you get nearly 20 million results. There are thousands upon thousands of articles about his misdeeds. Scholarly articles about his skill as a forger, as well as speculation over possible mental conditions, psychopath. Reviews of the many stories told about the case, interviews with friends and associates, the interest runs really, really deep. And all this in spite of the fact that Hoffman himself has not spoken publicly since before he was sentenced and sent to prison for life. Interest in this case was immediate, but in the less sensational media environment of the mid-1980s, after the initial national coverage died down, It became a story with mostly regional interest, in part because the details of the case were embarrassing to lots and lots of people, as Andrew noted. There was a certain willingness to see the story fade away, if not outright suppression at times. In fact, in 1987, Deputy Salt Lake County Attorney Robert L. Stott said, quote, I think the best measure of Mark Hoffman's success is the variety and kinds of people whom he fooled. Hard-headed businessmen were fooled by Mark Hoffman. Collectors were fooled by Mark Hoffman. Professional authenticators, people who had their names on the line, were fooled and deceived by Mark Hoffman. Newspaper reporters were fooled by Mark Hoffman. Church leaders who supposedly have some special insight were fooled by Mark Hoffman. End quote. None of these folks were particularly keen to see the story told far and wide, so the pop culture ripples, as we like to say, were slower to form than other similar cases we've talked about. In 1988, the first book on the case was published. Salamander, the story of the Mormon forgery murders by Linda Stilito and Alan Roberts, was marketed as Capote-esque. But it is more focused on the investigation than the crimes, particularly the forensics. It's still in print today and has a rating of 3.88 on Goodreads. The other first book on the case, The Mormon Murders, A True Story of Greed, Forgery, Deceit, and Death by Stephen Nefay and Gregory White-Smith was published the same day. This telling leans into the Mormon backdrop of Hoffman's life and how LDS beliefs and structure made it the perfect mark for an intelligent con man like Hoffman. This book was a success and it was quickly optioned by CBS to become a four-part docuseries. More on that in a bit. The Mormon Murders is also still in print and has a 3.81 rating on Goodreads. Later that same year, journalist Robert Lindsay, author of The Falcon and the Snowman, published A Gathering of Saints, a true story of money, murder, and deceit, a meticulously researched account of the case. Lindsay received the 1989 CWA Gold Dagger for nonfiction, and the book was also nominated for an Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime. It is also still in print and has a 3.98 rating on Goodreads. But unlike Lindsay's first successful book, The Falcon and the Snowman, A Gathering of Saints was not translated to film. In fact, at this point, the cultural ripples seemed to peter out. It wasn't until 2002 that the next major book on Hoffman's case was published. The Poet and the Murderer, A True Story of Verse, Violence, and the Art of Forgery, 
by prolific British author and journalist Simon Worrell, uses one of Hoffman's Emily Dickinson forgeries as his lens into the story, shifting the focus slightly from LDS to the specificities of forgery. Which I didn't use that term. So for listeners who don't know, LDS is another way of referring to the Mormon Church, the Latter-day Saints. Thank you. Thank you. This book began as a fascinating article in the Guardian newspaper. It was titled The Impersonation of Emily, and we link to it in the episode notes. It's a good read if you're interested, so go and check that out. This book also remains in print. There are several other smaller titles on the case, but mostly self-published, and these four books pretty much make up the canon. Now on to TV and film. As with so many of the crimes we talk about, the case was covered in several of the TV crime standards. In 1997, Forensic Files did an episode on the forensic techniques used to crack the case and to reveal Hoffman's many forgeries. I don't think it's a stretch to say, actually, that this case is one of the early ones that fed the public's growing interest in forensics and crime scene investigation. Because of its complexity, the case involved multiple forensic specialties, giving it broad appeal. Within the realm of document examination alone, Hoffman had used techniques that were so innovative they were unknown to forensic scientists at the time and moved that discipline forward. In 2004, the story was fictionalized in an episode of Law & Order Criminal Intent, which featured Stephen Colbert as the Hoffman-like baddie. Oh, that's interesting. I know. I would love to go and watch that. (laughs) A 2010 episode of Who the Bleep Did I Marry featured Hoffman's former wife, Dory Olds, who, as Andrew said, divorced him a year after his arrest and maintains her ignorance of his crimes to this day. In 2019, an episode of Oxygen's true crime show, A Lie to Die For, explored the case as well. In or around 2011, the four-part docuseries I mentioned before, which was to be based on the Mormon Murders book, was shut down for good after decades in development. It's rumored to have been killed once and for all after the LDS president, Gordon Hinckley, who Andrew mentioned earlier, called CBS chief William Paley and asked him, quote, how would you like some outsiders doing a vicious four-hour attack on your Jews, end quote. Ugh. Yeah. I can't, I used to like love this man and when I was brainwashed in it and like to find out like what an incredible homophobe and like leading the church's legislation against queer people and uh, it's like so shocking to where reading that quote now it's like of course of course (laughs) yep (laughs) but the interest continues last year 10 years after cbs decided to bury their project netflix released a bbc produced documentary on the case called murder among the mormons for this episode and for you listeners i watched murder among the mormons for the first time and honestly, I just, I wasn't a huge fan. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I didn't even make it through the second episode, but it was hugely popular. Within two days of release, it had reached number two in the Netflix US movie rankings and appeared in the top 10 in Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, New Zealand, and the UK. It has an 89% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, Tomato Meter, and a 73 on Metacritic. But RogerEbert.com gives it only two stars. And their review kind of sums it up for me in this quote. Hess and Misum are too content with the fascinating details to ask what they mean or say about human nature. And while they have a lot of fun with some of the eccentric personalities in this story, the biggest problem with the length of these Netflix docuseries is that the runtime needs to feel justified, end quote. I agree with that. I felt like... I know you didn't watch the whole thing, but almost like they were trying to elicit a little bit of Tiger King personality yeah. with some of the characters and the guns. And mm-hmm. interestingly, yeah. I I happened to look it up. So I remember the first week it w- was watched on Netflix more than 600 million minutes. What? Yeah. So I don't know what that 
distills too. I mean, maybe that's like 6 million people watching 100 minutes, but yeah, it was 600 million minutes were watched of the series in the first week. Which is why you normally do this part of the episodes. (laughs) You just know stuff like that. (laughs) But the cultural ripples don't end there. Now we'll jump out of our more usual cultural corners and head into art and academia, which is where I think it kind of really gets interesting. In 2005, forensic scientists from 31 states gathered in Utah to review the forged work of Hoffman. At that conference, Salt Lake City crime scene investigator Steve Mayfield and retired uh, Salt Lake City forensic document examiner that Andrew mentioned earlier, George Throckmorton, presented a talk called Mythmaking and the Mark Hoffman Case, in which they examined the interplay of Hoffman's skill at producing forgeries and his ability to understand and exploit the foibles of individuals and institutions. Throckmorton said at the time, quote, We believe there are over a hundred Hoffman forgeries still out there. And again, I'm finding new ones. As recent as this year, I found three new forgeries, four new forgeries, five new forgeries, excuse me, that we never knew existed. And many auction houses have sold Hoffman's work by accident. Even when the forgeries are known to be fake, their quality is so high that they now have value of their own apart from their ability to bamboozle. Just last year, Hoffman's forgery, The Oath of a Free Man, that Andrew talked about, along with the slipcover made by the Library of Congress as it was considering its purchase, sold for $52,500. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's a known fake. It was sold as a fake. The purchasers immediately donated the document to the Grolier Club, a private Manhattan club and bibliophile society dedicated to fostering, quote, the study, collecting, and appreciation of books and works on paper, their art, history, production, and commerce. The Grolier Club has a collection on the detection of forged handwriting, and the oath was added to its other works of fakery. And this is not murderabilia in the way that we usually talk about it, ghoulish knickknacks that give the purchaser some kind of warped clout or even thrill. These are artifacts admired and studied for their artistry and ability to deceive, not for their proximity to more heinous crimes. But other auction houses may be purposely scrubbing Hoffman's name from the provenance. One auction house representative explained, quote, We don't guarantee it to be authentic. We guarantee it, we sell it, and if the customer doesn't like it, we'll give them their money back, end quote. Hmm. So... (laughs) Let that be in your mind when you're about to purchase artifacts or collectibles. So no one really knows how many inauthentic artifacts are out there right now being hoarded and admired by unknowing collectors. And how many copycats has Hoffman inspired who we may know nothing about? Without a doubt, he made an indelible mark on the rare document and collector world, and the scope is still really completely unknown. I read one report that said they believed there to be more than 400 documents in the Mormon church's archive that they purchased from him. That's crazy. The scope of the work. I mean, it does, I think, elicit some begrudging respect for his skill as both as a as a con man, but also as an artist. I mean, I couldn't help but think as I was going through this, if only he had directed that you know, ability to research history and then create beautiful documents. I mean, if he had directed that towards something productive. Yeah, like there probably is a world in which he could have had a career with these skills. I mean, how about even like forger detector? (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which I think just goes back to you know, our previous point about being a psychopath or a sociopath. And, you know, we're not shrinks, even though, you know, I like to think of myself (laughs) kind of as one. (laughs) So we can't diagnose people, but, you know, he, he was meant to kind of do this. He chose this. It, it suited him. It wasn't like he was a victim of circumstance. He fell into this and could find no way out. You know, he enjoyed 
fooling people, I think. Mm-hmm. And he didn't feel anything about hurting people or institutions. I mean, other than maybe delight at hurting the Mormon church. Yeah. And while they were victimized, I do not look at the Mormon church as a victim in this story. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, they were up to no good too. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason that this story has gone untold for so long is because they actively suppressed the story in lots and lots of ways. Well, yeah. I mean, this should have been a trial of the century. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. It's a bad one. So, like I said, I still stand by. I think a really good David Fincher-esque movie could exist in here. Mm-hmm. I just... I don't know if anyone will ever do it. I imagine, fair or not, like, the Mormon church would probably try to sue them to death. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that because he has remained quiet, you know, I think that the the criticism from that review on Roger Ebert really got to the heart of it is it's hard to draw larger conclusions or talk about the the higher level themes that might really make a story meaningful and interesting and Capote-esque. Mm-hmm. But how do you get at that without being able to get inside his head? Yeah. And he won't talk, for no. better or worse. Yeah. Which is interesting in and of itself. Yeah, you would think somebody like that would be chatty as hell. Yeah, you kind of would. They normally are. Yeah. No, I know. It's, it's an interesting one. But one thing that I'm excited for, I don't know if you've ever read it or even... Or heard of it, but the book Under Under the Banner of Heaven. Yes, and I love him. Krakauer, is that how you say his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is about to be um, a Hulu limited series starring Andrew Garfield. Oh, really? And I am very excited to see how that's interpreted. Did you read the book? Yes. Oh, I haven't read that one yet. I... I want to, but part of me is like, I, I don't know. Stories about religions don't interest me all that much. It's weird. We've talked about this before, how some crimes and some topics and some angles just are more interesting to people than others. And this one is in my blind spot, but I wasn't into um, mountain climbing either. And when I read Into Thin Air... I mean, his writing is amazing, so maybe I'll have to check that one out. Well, yeah, as someone who has skin in the game. Yeah. I I mean, I'm a firm believer that, like, people who become ex-Mormons, there's, like, a... I don't know if it's, like, a defense mechanism. There's, like, some psychological piece where then you feel the compulsion to learn everything you can. Like, I feel like I know infinitely more about Mormonism since leaving the religion than I Mm -hmm. ever knew spending 20 years being taught it multiple times a week. That makes sense. I mean, that makes total sense. But Under the Banner of Heaven is, I mean, it's an incredible book, incredible writing. It is hard. It is so messed up. Really? Yeah, because it's like a dual timeline of current day slash back then current day. Mm -hmm. Um, fundamentalist Mormons, so kind of like the Warren Jeff side of things, and Mm -hmm. then the historical beginnings of Mormonism and how extreme and terrible it all was, and the like child abuse and sexual abuse, and I mean, early Mormonism, I've always thought could be an incredible HBO sort of R-rated series, yeah, because it is fucked up. Well, near where I grew up, there was a town where there had been a Mormon massacre in the 1800s, and I need to dig and reread about it, but part of the local lore and kind of taint on the Missouri settlers. Well, yeah, I mean, the governor of Missouri signed an extermination order to kill all Mormons. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's times were different, as we say. But there's like point. <laughs> some legitimate comparisons through that book. Like uh, it was compared to Islamic extremism. 
and yeah. the goal of pure theocracy with Joseph Smith as the president of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And like we're actively using missionaries and building up settlements. It kind of reminded me of like the, what are they? The Rajneeshis in Oregon. Mm. You know, mm. oh, well, we it might sounds, cover that case. Yeah, it sounds, oh, the the poisoning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I mean, obviously the extermination order was horrendous and, like, it yeah. would never support that, but it didn't come from nowhere. Right. Like, Mormons were extremely violent. It was political coups. It was it was a yeah. lot going on in that early phase, and they've been able to morph into kind of, like, your friendly white neighbor as right. their PR now, but it was bloody, violent, full of sexual assault abuse i mean joseph smith was married to a 14 year old girl one of his many wives that he lied about it it goes deep but i'm excited to watch the show i'm sure it'll be traumatic yeah and i'm asking this not tongue-in-cheek but in all seriousness are there groups of ex-mormons who like support groups or social groups oh yeah i mean i follow the subreddit Mm -hmm. um I guess I could look really quickly to see how many people are in that. But like the Mormon church, they just keep attacking queer people through legislation, through voter initiatives, through their lobbying campaigns. So like often you'll hear Mormons that are like, why can't you just let it go? And it's like, well, you're actively trying to harm me. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and I read in one of these sources that it's the fastest growing religion in the United States right now? Uh, I thought it was declining in the U.S., but maybe because all religions are declining, it could still be the fastest growing. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely the fastest growing in Africa and South America. And it's declining hard in Europe and Canada as well, same as America. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, they literally, I could go on forever, but they literally had a talk where one of their leaders was like, God didn't say if ye lack wisdom, ask Google. <laughs> and, like, they're, like, really trying not to get people uh, to look at the internet about their history. <laughs> but anyway, the ex-Mormon subreddit has 229,000 members. That's pretty sizable. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole church itself claims to have, like, 14 million members. So, like, that's a big chunk. <laughs> Yeah, and the and those are the ones who have decided to come together. I mean, there are a lot more than that, obviously. And subscribe. Like, I'm not really a Reddit user, so like I'm not subscribed to this group. I just check in every once in a while. Right, right, right. Hmm. Interesting. It's fascinating. Wow. It could be a whole other sub podcast to just discuss this crap, but um... Yeah, for sure. But it's an interesting case and one that I don't think, you know, a lot of people know a lot about. I mean, the docuseries last year was very popular, but I still think mm-hmm. it's not as well known as it probably should be. Oh, yeah. I think I think that's maybe there will be a cultural tipping point with Mormon history and like this mm-hmm. will be. But like they're elite. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars lobbying. They meet with the president of the United States. They mm-hmm. call up the president of CBS like they're a media conglomerate they're a corporation like yeah they are incredibly powerful in terms of pr and so Mm -hmm. i don't think it's surprising that there's been very little about them yeah yeah it's scary but yeah (laughs) (laughs) well we did a little departure of who does what but i think this was a great episode i'm so glad we did it yeah i like switching it up sometimes to keep it fresh and with that listener we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 